The International Association for Near-Death Studies presents NDE Radio, a weekly exploration of near-death experiences and similar encounters with the other side. Now, here's your host, Lee Whitting. Welcome to NDE Radio, brought to you by IANS, the International Association for Near-Death Studies. I'm your host, Lee Whitting. We're in the midst of the 12 days of Christmas, and as in every year about this time, all of the filmed versions of Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol have been aired again on television. It's an honor Dickens deserves, since it was his writing of The Christmas Carol that almost single-handedly changed the way the British and us came to observe Christmas. Dickens was writing during the Industrial Age of England when people were moving to the city and leaving their traditions. Gifts were given on Boxing Day, but some religions, such as the Puritans, even considered Christmas more pagan than Christian. Father Christmas was a character more like the pagan green man, bringing joy to the dark time of the year. But before Dickens' tale, published on December 19, 1843, the tradition was dying out in England. Dickens and Washington Irving had met and agreed that the reestablishment of a celebrational tradition of Christmas might be good for their industrial age. But it was Dickens who emphasized the notion that Jesus' birth was best celebrated in meeting the needs of our fellow men. Generally speaking, the movie dialogues follow Dickens' writing pretty closely. But the special effects of the ghostly scenes are given over to the special effects teams and the technology of the day. So I thought it might be of interest to actually hear Dickens' own descriptions of Scrooge's visions especially since Charles Dickens reported having an encounter with the other side himself. So let me begin with that. In an article titled, The Night Dickens Had a Marian Vision, which appeared in the Catholic Herald, William Audy, uh, author of Dickens and Carlyle, The Question of Influence, provided the text of a letter Dickens wrote to John Forster. Audy wrote, It seems Dickens, in 1844, underwent a religious experience, which he described vividly in a letter to Forster. Let me tell you, Dickens wrote from Venice, of a curious dream I had last Monday night, and of the fragments of reality I can collect, which helped to make it up. In an indistinct place, which was quite sublime in its uh, indistinctness, I was visited by a spirit. I could not make out the face nor do I recollect that I desired to do so. It wore a blue drapery, as the Madonna might in a picture by Raphael, and bore no resemblance to anyone I have ever known except in stature. It was so full of compassion and sorrow for me that it cut me to the heart, and I said, sobbing, Oh, give me some token that you have really visited me. Answer me one question, I said, in an agony of entreaty lest it should leave me. What is the true religion? As it paused a moment without replying, I said, Good God, in such an agony of haste, lest it should go away. You think, as I do, that the form of religion does not so greatly matter if we try to do good? Or, I said, observing that it still hesitated and was moved with the greatest compassion for me, perhaps the Roman Catholic is the best? Perhaps it makes one think of God oftener and believe in him more steadily. For you, said the spirit, full of such heavenly tenderness for me that I felt as if my heart would break 
For you, it is the best. Then I awoke with the tears running down my face and myself in exactly the condition of the dream. It was just dawn. Now, Odie writes, was this a vision of the Blessed Virgin Mary, as many Catholics will naturally assume? During the course of the dream, Dickens made the assumption that he was speaking to his wife's sister, Mary Hogarth, who had died in 1837 and whom he had dearly loved, though he also perceived that the spirit, quote, bore no resemblance to anyone I have known, unquote. But he also explained the dream afterwards in explicitly Catholic terms, pointing out that there was, quote, a great altar in our bedroom, unquote, where Mass had once regularly been said, and that he had been listening to the convent bells, which rang at intervals in the night, and so had thought, no doubt, of Roman Catholic services. Put the case, Dickens wrote to Forrester, of that wish, the ambition he had expressed in an earlier letter to leave in his writings his hand upon the time, with one tender touch for the mass of toiling people that nothing could obliterate, being fulfilled by any agency in which I had no hand. And I wonder whether I should regard it as a dream or an actual vision. Odie writes, A vision of the Blessed Virgin, strengthening what was to become Dickens' lifelong vocation of fighting in his writings for the mass of toiling people. It is worth repeating that Dickens himself certainly wondered whether this was indeed an actual vision, and if a vision, of whom else? Well, let's go on and uh, pick up with uh, some of the descriptions in the Christmas Carol of the spirits that Scrooge beheld. I'm going to start with Marley's ghost. The cellar door flew open with a booming sound, and then he heard the noise much louder on the floors below, then coming up the stairs, then coming straight towards the door. It's humbug still, said Scrooge. I won't believe it. His color changed, though, when, without a pause, it came on through the heavy door and passed into the room before his eyes. Upon its coming in, the dying flame leaped up as though it cried, I know him, Marley's ghost, and fell again. The same face, the very same, Marley in his pigtail, usual waistcoat, tights and boots, the tassels on the ladder bristling like his pigtail and his coat skirts, and the hair upon his head. The chain he drew was clasped about his middle. It was long and wound about him like a tail, and it was made, for Scrooge observed it closely, of cash boxes, keys, padlocks, ledgers, deeds, and heavy purses wrought in steel. His body was transparent so that Scrooge, observing him and looking through his waistcoat, could see the two buttons on his coat behind. Scrooge had often heard it said that Marley had no bowels, but he never had believed it until now. No, nor did he believe it even now. Though he looked the phantom through and through and saw it standing before him, though he felt the chilling influence of its death-cold eyes, and marked the very texture of the folded kerchief bound about its head and chin, which wrapper he had not observed before, he was still incredulous and fought against his senses. How now, said Scrooge, caustic and cold as ever, what do you want with me? Much, Marley's voice, no doubt about it. Who are you? Ask me who I was. Who were you then, said Scrooge, raising his voice, you're particular for a shade.' 
He was going to say to a shade, but substituted this as more appropriate. In life, I was your partner, Jacob Marley. Can you, can you sit down? asked Scrooge, looking doubtfully at him. I can. Do it then. Scrooge asked the question because he didn't know whether a ghost so transparent might find himself in a condition to take a chair and felt that in the event of its being impossible, it might involve the necessity of an embarrassing explanation. But the ghost sat down on the opposite side of the fireplace as if he were quite used to it. You don't believe in me, observed the ghost. I don't, said Scrooge. What evidence would you have of my reality beyond that of your senses? I don't know, said Scrooge. Why do you doubt your senses? Because, said Scrooge, a little thing affects them. A slight disorder of the stomach makes them cheats. You may be an undigested bit of beef, a blot of mustard, a crumb of cheese, a fragment of an underdone potato. There's much more of gravy than of grave about you, whatever you are. Scrooge was not much in the habit of cracking jokes, nor did he feel in his heart by any means waggish then. The truth is that he tried to be smart as a means of distracting his own attention and keeping down his terror, for the specter's voice disturbed the very marrow in his bones. To sit, staring at those fixed, glazed eyes in silence for a moment would play, Scrooge felt the very deuce with him. There was something very awful, too, in the specter's being provided with an infernal atmosphere of its own. Scrooge could not feel it in himself, but this was clearly the case, for though the ghost sat perfectly motionless, its hair and skirts and tassels were still agitated by the hot vapor from an o- as if by the hot vapor from an oven. You see this toothpick, said Scrooge, returning quickly to the char- charge for the reason just assigned, and wishing, though it were only for a second, to di- divert the vision's stony gaze from himself. I do, replied the ghost. You are not looking at it, said Scrooge. But I see it, said the ghost, notwithstanding. Well, returned Scrooge, I have but to swallow this and be for the rest of my days persecuted by a legion of goblins, all of my own creation. Humbug, I tell you, humbug. At this, the spirit raised a frightful cry and shook its chains with such a dismal and appalling noise that Scrooge held on tight to his chair to save himself from falling in a swoon. But how much greater was his horror than the phantom taking off the bandage round its head as if it were too warm to wear indoors, its lower jaw dropped down upon its breast. Scrooge fell upon his knees and clasped his hands before his face. Mercy, he said, dreadful apparition, why do trouble me? Man of the worldly mind, replied the host, do you believe in me or not? I do, said Scrooge, I must, but why do spirits walk the earth, and why do they come to me? It is required of every man, the ghost returned, that the spirit within him should walk abroad among his fellow men, and travel far and wide, and if that spirit goes not forth in life, it is condemned to do so after death. It is doomed to wander through the world, oh, woe is me, and witness what it cannot share, but might have shared on earth and turned to happiness. Again the specter raised a cry and shook its chains and wrung its shadowy, shadowy hands. 
You're fettered, said Scrooge, trembling. Tell me why. I wear the chain I forged in life, replied the ghost. I made it, link by link, and yard by yard. I girded it on of my own free will, and of my own free will I wore it. Is is its pattern strange to you? Scrooge trembled more and more. Or would you know, pursued the ghost, the weight and length of the strong coil you bear yourself? It was full as heavy and as long as this seven Christmas eves ago. You have labored on it since. It is a ponderous chain. Scrooge glanced about him on the floor in the expectation of finding himself surrounded by some fifty or sixty fathoms of iron cable, but he could see nothing. Jacob, he said imploringly, old Jacob Marley, tell me more. Speak comfort to me, Jacob. I have none to give, the ghost replied. It comes from other regions, Ebenezer Scrooge, and is conveyed by other ministers to other kinds of men. Nor can I tell you what I would. A very little more is all permitted to me. I cannot rest. I cannot stay. I cannot linger anywhere. My spirit never walked beyond our counting house. Mark me. In life, my spirit never roved beyond the narrow limits of our money-changing hole. And weary journeys lie before me. It was a habit with Scrooge, whenever he became thoughtful, to put his hands in his breeches' pockets. Pondering on what the host had said, he did so now, but without lifting up his eyes or getting off his knees. You must have been very slow about it, Jacob, Scrooge observed in a businesslike manner, though with humility and deference. Slow, the ghost repeated. Seven years dead, mused Scrooge, and traveling all the time. The whole time, said the ghost, no rest, no peace, incessant torture of remorse. You travel fast, said Scrooge. On the wings of the wind, replied the ghost. You might have got over a great quantity of ground in seven years, said Scrooge. The ghost, on hearing this, set up another cry and clanked its chains so hideously in the dead silence of the night that the ward would have been justified in indicting it for a nuisance. Oh, captive bound and double iron, cried the phantom, not to know that ages of incessant labor by immortal creatures for this earth must pass into eternity before the good of which is it is susceptible is all developed. Not to know that any Christian spirit working kindly in its little sphere, whatever it may be, will find its mortal life too short for its vast means of usefulness. Not to know that no space of regret can make amends for one's life opportunity misused. Yet such was I. Oh, such was I. But you are always a good man of business, Jacob, faltered Scrooge, who now began to apply this to himself. Business, cried the ghost, wringing its hands again. Mankind was my business. The common welfare was my business. Charity, mercy, forbearance, and benevolence were all my business. The dealings of my trade were but a drop of water in the comprehensive ocean of my business. It held up its chain at arm's length as if they were the cause of all its unavailing grief and flung it heavily upon the ground again. At this time of the rolling year, the specter said, I suffer most. Why did I walk through crowds of fellow beings with my eyes turned down and never raise them to that blessed 
star which led the wise men to a poor abode. Were there no poor homes to which its light would have conducted me? Scrooge was very much dismayed to hear the specter going on at this rate and began to quake exceedingly. Hear me, cried the ghost. My time is nearly gone. I will, said Scrooge, but don't be hard upon me. Don't, don't be flowery, Jacob. Pray. How is it that I appear before you in a shape that you can see? I may not tell. I have sat invisible beside you many and many a day. It was not an agreeable idea. Scrooge shivered and wiped the perspiration from his brow. That is no light part of my penance, pursued the ghost. I am here tonight to warn you that you have yet a chance and hope of escaping my fate, a chance and hope of my procuring Ebenezer. You are always a good friend to me, said Scrooge. Thank ye. You will be haunted, resumed the ghost, by three spirits. Scrooge's countenance fell almost as low as the ghosts had done. Is that the chance and hope you mentioned, Jacob? He demanded in a faltering voice. It is. I, I think I'd rather not, said Scrooge. Without their visit, said the ghost, you cannot hope to shun the path I tread. Expect the first tomorrow when the bell tolls one. Couldn't I take them all at once and have it over, Jacob? Hinted Scrooge. Expect the second on the next night at the same hour. The third upon the next night when the last stroke of twelve has ceased to vibrate. Look to see me no more. And look that, for your own sake, you remember what has passed between us. When it had said these words, the specter took its wrapper from the table and bound it round its head as before. Scrooge knew this by the smart sound its teeth made when the jaws were brought together by the bandage. He ventured to raise his eyes again and found his supernatural visitor confronting him in an erect attitude with its chain wound over and about its arm. The apparition walked backward from him, and at every step it took, the window raised itself a little so that when the specter reached it, it was wide open. It beckoned Scrooge to approach, which he did. When they were within two paces of each other, Marley's ghost held up its hand, warning him to come no nearer. Scrooge stopped. Not so much in obedience as in surprise and fear, for on the raising of the hand he became sensible of confused noises in the air, incoherent sounds of lamentation and regret, wailings inexpressibly sorrowful and self-accusatory. The specter, after listening for a moment, joined in the mournful dirge and floated out upon the bleak, dark night. Scrooge followed to the window. Desperate in his curiosity, he looked out. The air was filled with phantoms, wandering hither and thither in restless haste, and moaning as they went, every one of them wore chains like Marley's ghost. Some few, they might be guilty governments, were linked together. None were free. Many had been personally known to Scrooge in their lives. He had been quite familiar with one old ghost in a white waistcoat with a monstrous iron safe attached to its ankle, who cried piteously at being unable to assist a wretched woman with an infant whom he saw below upon a doorstep. The misery with them all what, what all was clearly that they sought to interfere for good in human matters and had lost the power forever. Whether these creatures faded into mist or mist enshrouded them, he could not tell. 
But they and their spirit voices faded together, and the night became as it had been when he walked home. I think we have time for at least the first spirit visit. I don't think we'll get through them all. This is the uh, coming of of, uh, spirit that follows after Marley's ghost. He spoke before the hour bell sounded, which it now did with a deep, dull, hollow, melancholy one. Light flashed up in the room upon the instant, and the curtains of his bed were drawn. The curtains of his bed were drawn aside, I tell you, by a hand. Not the curtains at his feet, nor the curtains at his back, but those to which his face was addressed. The curtains of his bed were drawn aside, and Scrooge, starting up, in a half-recumbent attitude, found himself face to face with the unearthly visitor who drew them, as close to it as I am now to you, and I am standing in the spirit of your elbow. It was a strange figure, like a child, yet not so like a child as like an old man, viewed through some supernatural medium which gave him the appearance of having receded from the view and being diminished as a, to a child's proportions. Its hair, which hung about its neck and down its back, was white as if with age, and yet the face had not a wrinkle in it, and the tenderest bloom was on the skin. The arm was very long and muscular. The hands were the same, as if its hold were of uncommon strength. Its legs and feet, most delicately formed, were like those upper members spare. It wore a tunic of the purest white, and round its waist was bound a lustrous belt, the sheen of which was beautiful. It held a branch of fresh green holly in its hand, and in singular contradiction to that wintry emblem had its dress trimmed with summer flowers. But the strangest thing about it was that from the crown of its head there sprung a bright, clear jet of light by which all this was visible, and which was doubtless the occasion of its of its using in the duller moments a great extinguisher for a cap which it now held under its arm. Even this, though, when Scrooge looked at it with increasing steadiness, was not its strangest quality. For as its belt sparkled and glittered now in one part and now in another, and what was light one instant at another time was dark, so the figure itself fluctuated in its distinctness, being now a thing with one arm, now with one leg, now with twenty legs, now a pair of legs without a head, now a head without a body, of which dissolving parts no outline would be visible in the dense gloom wherein they melted away. And in the very wonder of this, it would be itself again distinct and clear as ever. Are you the spirit, sir, whose coming was foretold to me? asked Scrooge. I am. The voice was soft and gentle, singularly low, as if instead of being so close beside him, it was, it were at a distance. Who and what are you? Scrooge demanded. I'm the ghost of Christmas past. Long past? inquired Scrooge, observing, observant of its dwarfish stature. No, your past. All right, let's turn to Christmas present. 
The moment Scrooge's hand was on the lock, a strange voice called him by his name and bade him enter. He obeyed. It was his own room. There was no doubt about that. But it had undergone a surprising transformation. The walls and ceiling were so hung with living green that it looked a perfect grove, from every part of which bright gleaming berries glistened. The crisp leaves of holly, mistletoe, and ivy reflected back the light, as if so many little mirrors had been scattered there, and such a mighty blaze went roaring up the chimney as that dull petrification of a hearth had never known in Scrooge's time, or Marley's, or for many and many a winter season gone. Heaped up on the floor to form a kind of throne were turkeys, geese, game, poultry, brawn, great joints of meat, suckling pigs, long wreaths of sausages, mince pies, plum puddings, barrels of oysters, red-hot chestnuts, cherry-cheeked apples, juicy oranges, luscious pears, immense twelfth cakes, and seething bowls of punch that made the chamber dim with their delicious steam. In easy state upon the couch there sat a jolly giant, glorious to see, who bore a glowing torch in shape not unlike Plenty's horn, and held it up high up to shed its light on Scrooge as he came peeping round the door. "'Come in!' exclaimed the ghost. "'Come in and know me better, man!' Scrooge entered timidly and hung his head before the spirit. He was not the dogged Scrooge he had been, and though the spirit's eyes were clear and kind, he did not like to meet them. "'I am the ghost of Christmas presents,' said the spirit. "'Look upon me.' Scrooge reverently did so. It was clothed in one simple green robe or mantle bordered with white fur. This garment hung so loosely on the figure that its capacious breast was bare as if it disdaining it to be warded or concealed by any artifice. Its feet, observable beneath the ample folds of the garment, were also bare, and on its head it wore no other covering than a holly wreath set here and there with shining icicles. Its dark brown curls were long and free, free as its genial face, its sparkling eye, its open hand, its cheery voice, its unconstrained demeanor, and its joyful air. Girded round its middle was an antique scabbard, but no sword was in it, and the ancient sheath was eaten up with rust. "'You have never seen the like of me before,' exclaimed the spirit. "'Never,' Scrooge made answer to it. "'Have never walked forth with the younger members of my family, meaning, for I am very young, my elder brothers born in these latter years, pursued the phantom?' I don't think I have, said Scrooge. I'm afraid I have not. Have you many brothers, spirit? More than eighteen hundred, said the ghost. A tremendous family to provide for, muttered Scrooge. Of course, those eighteen hundred were the Christmas presents going back to uh, Jesus' time. We have a couple minutes. Let's see if we can get to the third apparition. Scrooge looked about him for the ghost and saw it not. As the last stroke ceased to vibrate, he remembered the prediction of old Jacob Marley and lifted up his eyes, beholding, beheld a solemn phantom draped and hooded coming like a mist along the ground toward him. The phantom slowly, gravely, silently approached. When it came near him, Scrooge bent down upon his knee, for in the very air through which the spirit moved, it seemed to scatter gloom and mystery. It was shrouded in a deep black garment, which concealed its head, its face, its form, and left nothing of it visible save one outstretched hand. 
but for this it would have been difficult to detach its figure from the night and separate it from the darkness by which it was surrounded. He felt that it was tall and stately when it came beside him and that its mysterious presence filled him with a solemn dread. He knew no more for the spirit neither spoke nor moved. I am in the presence of the ghost of Christmas yet to come, said Scrooge. The spirit answered not, but pointed onward with its hand. You are about to show me shadows of the things that have not happened, but will happen in the time before us, Scrooge pursued. Is is that so, spirit? The upper portion of the garment was contracted for an instant in its folds, as if the spirit had inclined its head. That was the only answer he received. Although well used to ghostly company, although well used to ghostly company by this time, Scrooge feared the silent shape so much that his legs trembled beneath him, and he found that he could hardly stand when he prepared to follow it. The spirit paused a moment as observing his condition and giving him time to recover. But Scrooge was all the worse for this. It thrilled him with a vague, uncertain horror to know that behind the dusky shroud there were ghostly eyes intently fixed upon him, whilst he, though he stretched his own to the uttermost, could see nothing but a spectral hand and one great heap of black. Well, that's... The description of Marley's ghost and Christmas past, present, and to come from Charles Dickens' brilliant uh, The Christmas Carol. Thanks for allowing me this half hour to honor this special work of Charles Dickens. Unfortunately, we are out of time for today. If you'd like to listen again to this or any of our past shows, just go to our website at nderadio.org. For more information about IONS, go to their website at IONS.org and tune in next Monday, 11 a.m. Eastern for more NDE Radio. This is Lee Whitting saying thanks for listening and best wishes for the new year.